Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Welcome here to this afternoon session of Strength to Strength. And like said before, for Adam, it is, it is Sunday morning session. So thanks for, for, for your willingness to do this again, Adam. And we're looking forward to this. Um, so Adam's planning to bring us a critique on the, the dangers of dispensationalism. He shared a overview of classic dispensationalism this morning and yeah, looking into that more, give a critique of it, and so I'm looking forward to what you have for us. I don't, I don't think we'll spend much more time on that, but get right into it. But let's have, let's have prayer first before we do that. Father, I thank you for this um, day. Thank you for this opportunity, and I just pray as we, as we look into Scripture and think about what, what your plan is, especially kind of spanning, spanning across time and and the story of the way you work with humanity. God, I just pray that you would um, show us yourself and that you would help us to grasp the beauty and the splendor of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, for Adam as he shares. I pray that you would help us to be, as we think about this and different different doctrines, help us to be wise and discerning and also to be um, kind and charitable to um, other brothers and sisters in Christ who do hold different views. Um, help us to be have the spirit of Christ in this. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for the, the what Adam shared this morning, and I just pray you would bless him as he does it this afternoon. I pray for the internet connection, that it can be strong and clear, and I just pray to your blessing on uh, yeah, the, this 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 new day that Adam is getting to a peek into before we do here in the east, Eastern time. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, Adam. All right. Well, uh, good afternoon to you all. I'm glad that able able to join with you again. Excuse me if my uh, I sound a little uh, out of it to be <laughs> to begin with. Hopefully, I'll I'll fully wake up and will not be a problem. Um, so let me go ahead and share my screen here. Okay. So maybe I I forgot to mention something while Adam's. Getting that going. Um, questions. If you have questions that you haven't submitted yet, you can do that by chat, and we will deal with them at the end of, of Adam's talk here this morning. We do have several, so so let's. Yeah, looking forward to this. Go ahead, Adam. All right. So this morning we did the first session, the dangers of dispensationalism, and we uh, gave an overview of classic dispensationalism. And here in this session, we're going to do a critique of classic dispensationalism. Um, and I want to say something uh, similar to what Wendell just said about how we approach others who may hold to these views. I work in an environment where uh, it's an interdenominational environment, and I work with people who hold various views, lots of Calvinists. I'm sure there's uh, many dispensationalists as well. And I think it's important that uh, we take Jesus's command not to judge others very seriously. Um, what what helps me to do that is when I encounter people who have a different theological viewpoint than I do. I try to remember or or look at ways in which they're actually 
maybe even living out the commands of Christ better than I am. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're serving. They have a heart for service that exceeds mine. Maybe they're more loving than I am. Um, and I, I find that I can often, <laughs> because I'm certainly not perfect, I can often find those ways. Well, hey, you know, maybe their theology is not very good. Or maybe I disagree with some points of the theology, but I, I don't disagree with how they're loving others or I don't disagree, agree with how they're serving others. And I can really affirm that in them. And so I find that helpful to, to do that. And I, I would encourage us to do that as we look at dispensationalists too, that, you know, there may be some aspects of their theology that we disagree with and maybe some of their practice, but maybe in other areas of practice, they're actually uh, doing quite well and living out the commands of Christ. So I just say that as a, as a way to dive into this topic as we are offering a critique that we can disagree with a, a theology while affirming, hey, you know, this person who holds this theology, in many ways they're following uh, the commands of Christ quite well, and maybe in some ways they're doing it better than I am. And so I would encourage all of us to adopt that, that uh, attitude of humility as we look at others and critique their theological systems. Um, let's start with a quick review of what we discussed in the morning session. Key points of classic dispensationalism. Again, the, the key point would be a rigid distinction between Israel and the church. Hopefully that came through clearly in the morning session. Uh, second would be a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy about Israel. Uh, if you recall, we, we said that it's not that classic dispensationalists uh, literally interpret everything in scripture because they also adopt many typological interpretations. But when Old Testament prophecy is directed at Israel, um, classic dis- dispensationalists do demand a literal interpretation. Um, the idea that div- the Davidic covenant will be literally fulfilled on earth with Israel. And so the idea that the Davidic covenant is fulfilled by Jesus uh, reigning from heaven is rejected by classic dispensationalists. They demand a literal fulfillment on earth of the Davidic covenant with an earthly throne. Um, classic dispensationalists teach that Israel is the true recipient of the new covenant. And if you recall, uh, John Nelson Darby, uh, C.I. Schofield and Lewis uh, Sperry Chafer, uh, three of them had different ways of reconciling that idea uh, with the preaching of the gospel. And so there's not uniformity on what it means that Israel is the true recipient of the new covenant and, and how uh, Christians play into that. Um, also, the main focus of history is on Israel with the church as a parenthesis. And this, if you read this dispensational literature, you will come across this idea of the church being a parenthesis. It's uh, a big theme. And finally, kingdom teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount, are primarily for Israel in the postponed kingdom. Uh, Israel, when Jesus came to uh, earth, he offered the kingdom to Israel. They rejected it. And so the kingdom was postponed to a later time, namely the millennium, the thousand year reign described in Revelation 20. So that's just a quick overview of classic dispensationalism. Key points there. And now what I want to do is from Benjamin Merkel's book that I've been referencing, he himself gives a list of strengths and weaknesses of classic dispensationalism. So I I wanted to start with his list of strengths and weaknesses before diving into my own critique here. 
And I appreciate this because he he looks for both strengths and weaknesses, and he does this for a, a number of theological systems. One of the strengths that he points out is that classic dispensationalists take scripture seriously. And I think we can we all appreciate that. We want people to take scripture seriously. We don't want people to just ignore what scripture says. And so we can appreciate that about classic dispensationalism. Uh, the corresponding weakness, a lot of times strengths and weaknesses are, are tied together. But the corresponding weakness of that is that um, literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies seems artificial and forced. It's artificial because the actual underlying principle is not literal interpretation, but the rigid distinction of Israel in the church. And this literal interpretation is forced because the New Testament authors did not always seem to interpret Old Testament prophecies literally as referring to Israel. And we looked at a couple of examples of that um, in the first session with Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and then uh, Amos chapter 9, uh, um, sorry, um, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And so classic dispensationalists require a literal interpretation when even the New Testament authors don't always seem to require that. Um, another strength is a consistent theological system. Uh, classic dispensationalists take their beliefs to it, their logical ends. And so uh, there's something to be said for that. Um, however, the weaknesses uh, of this consistent theological system is, one, it seems to imply two ways of salvation. Now, as we looked at in the morning session, uh, Lewis Barry Chafer goes to lengths to say, well, that's not what we're teaching, but it does seem to imply it. Um, and second weakness is that Jesus's teachings, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, do not directly apply to Christians. And that uh, I think we can all see that that is a serious weakness. The third strength that Merkel points out is that um, classic dispensationalism allows for some typology and interpretation. Some of the other uh, dispensational beliefs in the spectrum of dispensationalism don't allow for typology nearly as much as classic dispensationalism does. However, typology is not allowed for interpreting Old Testament prophecy about Israel. Um, again, that is always needs to be interpreted literally according to classic dispensationalists. So that's uh, those are Merkel's three strengths and weaknesses for classic dispensationalism. Uh, now I want to dive into some of my own critiques here. Uh, we'll start with the literal interpretation of prophecy. The first point, I think this is we all know this is that the Bible is full of figurative language that is not intended to be interpreted literally. And we'll, we'll take a look at a number of examples of that. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 1 says this, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Well, we can see that this is figurative language because we all know that their hearts did not literally melt. But what that means, it's an idiom that they lost their courage. And so, again, this is not to be interpreted literally. This is 
figurative language. Here's another one. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, we know that this is a prophecy about Jesus. It's not talking about a literal stone that was literally rejected by builders building a building. And it did not, this stone that was rejected was not later recovered and uh, put into a literal building. This is a figurative prophecy referring to Jesus. Another example of figurative language, Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Well, this is not a proverb about where you get your drinking water from. This is a proverb to uh, us men about being faithful to our wives and not engaging in the sin of adultery. Uh, but it's figurative language of uh, exhorting us to faithfulness in marriage. Another example, Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Again, the idea that Jesus is a root. Jesus is not literally a root of a plant. And he's not literally a star. These are figurative descriptions of who Jesus is. Again, Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 39. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So in the parable of the tares of the field, uh, Jesus is very, very clearly speaking allegorically, where uh, each of these things, the good seed, the field, the tares, they all stand for something else. They're, Jesus is not literally talking about uh, tares in a field. He's talking about something else. This is figurative language, not literal. And then finally, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this one is quite interesting. This is uh, referring to uh, a prophecy. Matthew says is a prophecy about Jesus that is fulfilled when uh, Jesus, uh, Joseph fled to Egypt with Jesus and Mary and then returned to Israel. And Matthew says this fulfills the prophecy out of Egypt. I called my son. Of course, this uh, originally applies to the people of Israel, um, not to Jesus. Now, what makes this so interesting is that classic dispensationalists say that prophecy can have a preliminary application to the church or Christ, but will ultimately be literally fulfilled in Israel. But here it is reversed because this was originally applied to Israel, but then has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And and so we see that the typical classical dispensationalist way of viewing things is turned upside down here with this prophecy that originally applies to Israel and then is reaches its full fulfillment in Jesus. And classic dispensationalists usually say the opposite. It has 
it may have a partial fulfillment in Christ or the church, but it has its ultimate fulfillment in Israel. And so this one really goes against uh, the teaching of classic dispensationalism. So we can see that the Bible, like I said, is full of figurative language that is not intended to be interpreted literally. Now, there are some parts of scripture that are intended to be ter- interpreted literally, and we should interpret those literally and not figuratively. For example, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, I think he means that in a literal sense. That is not figurative language. He, when he says, love your enemies, as Dean Taylor often says, uh, you know, it'd be great to have a study Bible. It says, you know, has a footnote next to it. Uh, love your enemies. And the footnote says, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he means love your enemies, right? That's intended to be taken literally. But there's a lot of figurative language in scripture that's not intended to be interpreted literally. And so to demand that every prophecy about Israel be interpreted literally uh, could go against uh, what scripture is actually saying if scripture is using figurative language. Again, so why should prophecy be any different? Where in the Bible does it say that thou shalt not use figurative language in prophecy? Well, it doesn't say that. Uh, Figurative language is found throughout scripture, and so we should expect that we will find some in prophecy as well. And so when we demand a literal fulfillment of prophecies related to Israel, it's it's a false construct implemented to promote a theological agenda. In other words, the classic dispensationalists are starting with this notion that the church and Israel have to be rigidly distinct. So they start with that premise and then they read prophecy on the basis of that premise. And so they're allowing this uh, initial premise that they have to shape the way that they're interpreting prophecy rather than letting scripture uh, speak for itself and rather than letting scripture say for itself, okay, this uh, has a a typological or um, figurative uh, interpretation while this has a literal interpretation. But it's demanding or forcing this literal fulfillment on all prophecies related to Israel. And I would argue that that is a false construct there. And I would say that we should follow New Testament precedent in allowing prophecy directed toward Israel to be fulfilled by the church, much like what we saw in Peter quoting Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 12, and applying that to the Gentiles being accepted into the church. Even though Amos 9, verses 11 to 12 is about Israel, Peter interpreted it as applying to the Gentiles being accepted into the church, and we should follow that precedent. We should allow the New Testament to teach us what is acceptable in uh, interpreting Old Testament prophecy. The next question, was the kingdom postponed? The classic dispensationalist teaching is that Jesus offered the messianic kingdom to the Jews, to the people of Israel. They rejected it. And so the kingdom was postponed to the millennial time period. So let's ask the question, was the kingdom postponed? Well, in order to make this claim, classic dispensationalists create a false dichotomy between the kingdom of God in the kingdom of heaven. But if we look at scripture, we see that these terms are used interchangeably. A great example is Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the exact same quotation from Jesus 
but it's reported as the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we see that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, the two are used interchangeably. And so to say that they represent different things is, is a false dichotomy that I do not think can be supported from scripture. Many argue that, you know, Matthew is writing primarily for Jews and the Jews are more likely in, in that time to avoid uh, saying the name of God directly. And so Matthew was more inclined to say the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. I think that's a, a fairly good explanation of why we see that difference. But to say that these are representing two different things and that the kingdom of God, heaven will later merge into the kingdom of God as classic dispensationalists say, I don't think there's any basis for that uh, in scripture. I think that's a false dichotomy. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. They refer to the same thing. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, not that it was being postponed to a later time. And we don't get that sense from Jesus when he's talking about the kingdom, that the kingdom is something that's that's being postponed. We get the sense that it's something that's at hand at the time that he comes to this earth. Also, Jesus talks about the kingdom being taken away from the Jews and given to others. He doesn't talk about it being postponed. And we'll look at that in a couple of references here. Matthew chapter 21, verses 43 to 45, Jesus says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And so, again, Jesus does not say that the kingdom will be postponed and given to them later. He says that it'll be taken away from them. And the Pharisees and chief priests and Pharisees understood that, that he was speaking about them, saying, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to others. He doesn't say, well, you're rejecting the kingdom, so I'm going to postpone it to a later time period. And we just don't see that here. It's taken away from them. Also, if we look at Luke chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus says, for I tell you, this is speaking, this is the parable of the great banquet. Jesus says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So in the parable of the great banquet, Jesus does not say that those who refuse the invitation would have the banquet postponed to a later time. He said that none of them will taste his banquet meaning that there will never be a time when they are a part of it. Now, this is clearly, this parable of the great banquet is clearly an allegory about those who will be in the kingdom of God and those who will not be. So again, there's no talk about postponement, but there is talk about people who are invited who will not taste of the banquet. So again, the kingdom of God is taken away and given to others. It is not postponed. Next point is that the kingdom is not of this world. If you remember the morning session, the classic dispensationalists are demanding that the kingdom be fulfilled uh, in a literal way on earth, an earthly throne with an earthly ruler. But the kingdom is not of this world. As Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
So here we see that by nature, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is not an earthly kingdom. It is a heavenly kingdom. Now, classic dispensationalists may use the word now here, but now my kingdom is not from here. Um, to support their postponement theology. Well, now his kingdom's not from here, but it will be later uh, during the millennial time period. But the word now that you see here can also simply mean as it is. You know, as it is, my kingdom is not from here. But even if this word now does refer to a time frame, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus describes his kingdom as not being an earthly, physical kingdom. Even if the kingdom may one day be on earth, during the millennium, the nature of that kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. So Jesus talks about his kingdom or the kingdom of God being not of this world. Jesus also talks about the fact that the kingdom cannot be observed by outward physical signs. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus says, uh, it says, Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And so we see that this is such a kingdom that you can't see it. You can't observe that it is coming. And so it clearly doesn't refer to a physical earthly kingdom, which everybody can see. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. He does not say the kingdom of God is postponed to a later time period and you'll see it then. No, he says it is, is within you, present tense. Um, and I think if you look at this verse, this is one of the reasons why the classic dispensationalists make this distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Uh, because if you take the kingdom of heaven and make that apply to the messianic kingdom that will literally be fulfilled in Israel, then you don't have to deal with problem verses like this, where it says the kingdom of God is within you. And so I think by necessity, classic dispensationalists have to separate the kingdom of heaven from the kingdom of God as two separate entities. Otherwise, uh, scriptures like this really destroy their arguments. And so we see that these two are kept separate by classic dispensationalists uh, because the kingdom of God is within you really goes against all that classic dispensationalism teaches. All right, now let's go on to address the question, who is Israel? Who is Israel? And I'll remind you of this quote that we looked at in the morning session. Lewis Chafer says, Israelites become such by a natural birth while Christians become such by a spiritual birth. So again, Israelites, you're an Israelite because you're a natural descendant of Israel or Jacob, and that this is a natural process by being born from an Israelite father and mother, whereas Christians become Christians through a spiritual birth or or by being born again. Now let's take a look at Scripture and see if this, this notion is actually upheld. Romans chapter 9, verse 6, second half of verse 6 through verse 8, says this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that you can be a physical descendant of Israel or Jacob, but not belong to Israel. And you can be a physical descendant of Abraham, but not truly uh, be a child of Abraham. Not all of the children of the flesh are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so there's we don't see this stark distinction here in Romans chapter nine uh, between Israel as only physical descendants and the church as uh, spiritual descendants. There seems to be some overlap here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28 says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, we have to remember the book of Galatians. In, in Galatia, there are many Gentiles. One of the big issues was whether these Gentile Christians should be circumcised. But Paul addresses this church that's composed of many Gentiles, and he says he, he, he lumps them together with Isaac, calling them children of promise. So even though they're Gentiles, he sees them as brothers and sisters of Isaac, um, who is a physical descendant of Abraham. And so we don't see this sharp distinction between those who are uh, Jews by genealogy and those who are Gentile believers. But Paul seems to be lumping them together. Galatians 6.6, 6, again, speaking to this same group of people in Galatia, believers in Galatia, that includes many Gentiles. Uh, towards the end of the letter, Paul says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul's talking about something that he calls the Israel of God. And it would seem to be that the Israel of God includes as many as walk according to this rule. And so Paul seems to be including the Gentiles, the Gentile believers in this term, the Israel of God. And so, again, we don't see this sharp distinction between Israel and Gentile believers. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So again, we see the same theme coming up that it's, it's not the Jews who are Jews outwardly. That's not a, what it means to be a Jew. It's not about outward circumcision in the flesh. What being a Jew is truly about is, is something inward and circumcision being a matter of the heart. And so again, we see Paul is not focusing on this outward physical descent, but about a person's heart and determining who is a true Jew. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says, consider the Israel that is according to the flesh. In other words, physical Israel. Now, just by saying Israel, the Israel that is according to the flesh, it seems to imply that there is an Israel according to the spirit. And so if there's an Israel according to the flesh, talking about physical descendants of Jacob, well, then there must be 
and Israel according to the spirit as well. Otherwise, why use the term the Israel that is according to the flesh? It doesn't make sense unless there is an alternate way of understanding Israel as being that according to the spirit. The Israel that is Israel inwardly, not outwardly. Also, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says to the churches, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus is saying there are some people who claim to be Jews uh, because they are physical descendants of uh, Abraham, but they are not because they're not living their lives in a way that honors God. They're not being faithful to God, but actually they're a synagogue of Satan. And so this, there's this, again, this idea that you can be a Jew in a physical sense because of your genealogy, but that does not make you a true Jew if you're not being faithful to God. And so again, we see that physical descent is not what makes a person a true Jew or Israelite. Now there are times when Paul uses the term Israel. The term Israel is used to refer to the physical descendants of Jacob or Israel being his other name. But that physical descent is not what makes a person a true Jew or a true Israelite. I think that's clear in the verses of scripture we just looked at. The other point to make is that Israel was never composed purely of descendants of Jacob. We have to remember the term Israel. Remember, that's another name for Jacob. And so when we use the term Israel, it's referring to physical descendants of Jacob. So Israel was never composed purely of descendants of Jacob. And we see that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 to 38, where it's, which says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So we see that when the Israelites left Egypt, it wasn't just the physical descendants of Jacob, but it was a mixed multitude, meaning people from other nations, people from other ancestries, went with them and were part of this people of Israel. Also in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Even Moses himself, the great lawgiver, was married to a woman who was not an Israelite. And so we see even from the very beginning, Israel was not composed purely of physical descendants of Jacob. True Israelites are those who are faithful to God, whether Jew or Gentile by birth. That's who composes the true Israel, the Israel of God, as mentioned in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Now let's move on to one of the most interesting and (laughs) thought-provoking questions. Will all Israel be saved? In Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, Paul writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. But this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here, the key part where we're looking at is, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, if we interpret this literally as applying to the descendants of Jacob, there are some difficult questions that we must ask. Does all mean every descendant of Jacob in all of history? Does that mean every single Israelite through physical descent, through genealogy in all of history will be saved? Or does all mean every descendant of Jacob alive at the time? What, who is this all referring to? And if all means either of those two things, does this contradict Romans chapter 9, verse 27, which says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So which is it? Is it all that will be saved? Or is it the remnant that will be saved? There seems to be, if we're interpreting all to mean all of the physical descendants of Israel. And on the one hand, we're saying that they will all be saved. And then Romans 9.27 says that the remnant will be saved. It seems to be a, a contradiction here. And that's I see that as a major problem with this in interpreting all of Israel as all the physical descendants of Israel. We have a problem here, an apparent contradiction. Again, will the remnant be saved or will all be saved? It's a it's a question that we have when we look at the dispensational interpretation here of uh, Romans 11. So let's take another look at Romans 11 verses 25 to 27. Um, and you'll see a word there, uh, the word so in red and underlined. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now that word so that you see there in red underlined can also be interpreted this way. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is actually the more common uh, way to understand the Greek word utos. This is, there's a famous example of this in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When we read that in, you know, the King James Version and most modern English versions, the typical understanding that a modern English reader gets is this. God loved the world so much. That's actually not what the Greek is saying. What it's saying is God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son. It's, it's talking about the way in which God loved the world. But in modern English, when we see the word so, we think of it as uh, describing the extent Oh, God loved the world so much. It's not actually what it means. It means God loved the world in this way. Same thing here in Romans 11, where it says, and so all Israel will be saved. Uh, probably a better way to understand that in modern English is, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So through the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, all Israel will be saved. In other words, when we understand it this way, all Israel seems to include the fullness of the Gentiles. 
And so there's a remnant that will be saved, but that remnant includes the Gentiles. So if we interpret Israel as referring to the faithful in Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, the interpretation of Romans 11, 25 to 27 has fewer difficulties. The word all includes every believer, whether Jew or Gentile. It, it refers to the Israel of God, the Israel that's composed of faithful believers in Christ. And this group of believers is the remnant mentioned in Romans 9.27, because not, not everyone is included in uh, this group of faithful believers. It, it is truly a remnant. If we look at the world around us, we see that there is truly a remnant, only a remnant of those who are faithful to Christ. Now, some would call what I'm saying replacement theology, and this is a derogatory term. Um, proponents of dispensational theology would say, oh, well, that's replacement theology. You're saying that the church is replacing Israel. And I would encourage you not to think of it in that way. I don't see the church as replacing Israel. I see the church as being incorporated into the true Israel. So it's not that uh, Gentile believers come in and kick out Israel. Rather, it's that Gentile believers become incorporated into the true Israel, just like that mixed multitude that left Egypt with Moses. They were incorporated into Israel. And so too, the church, including Gentile believers, does not replace Israel, but it's incorporated into the true Israel. It becomes part of Israel. So the church, I don't think replacement theology is really a correct way to describe this uh, because the church is not replacing Israel. The church becomes part of the true Israel. Now let's move on to some questions that I have. These are just questions that I have pondered as I have reviewed dispensationalist teachings, particularly classic dispensationalism. I'm just going to put these questions up there and not necessarily answer them, but just for all of us to ponder. So if classic dispensationalism is true, why did John write about the millennium to Gentile believers in the seven churches in Asia if the millennium is only for Israelites. Think about it. The book of Revelation is written to seven churches in Asia, composed of many, many, many Gentile uh, believers. And in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, John talks about the millennium, the thousand-year reign. Now, if the thousand-year reign is only for Israelites, why did John bother writing about it to Gentile believers? It has nothing to do with them. Why do they need to even know about it? The second question I have. If the kingdom was postponed to the millennium, why did Jesus bother laying out the kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount? Why not lay it out later? Why did Jesus go through all the trouble of giving all this teaching about how to live in the kingdom if the kingdom was being postponed to the time of the millennium? It doesn't seem to make any sense as to why he would go through all the effort of teaching about the kingdom when the kingdom is coming who knows how many years later, at least 2,000 years later. Why give these teachings that are not going to be relevant for at least 2,000 years, if not more? Next question I have. What code of ethics is the Christian supposed to follow if Jesus' teachings are not directed toward Christians? I, I, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. What are we supposed to be doing? Why did Jesus give these teachings? Why did the early church follow Jesus' teachings so carefully and closely if the code of ethics in the Sermon on the Mount and in the teaching of Jesus are not 
directed toward Christians, but toward Jews. Next question I have. Why did Gentile Christians bother preserving the teachings of Christ in the four Gospels if those teachings were only for the Jews? If you think about the early scribes and the scribes throughout history, they were mostly Gentiles. Why bother preserving the teaching of Christ if they don't apply to Gentile believers? Why not just preserve the writings of Paul? Next question. Why did the early Gentile Christians quote Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount more frequently than any other parts of Scripture if those teachings were not directed to them? It's similar to the question I just asked. You know, if we if you review the teachings of the early church, particularly in the first 300 years, you'll see that the Sermon on the Mount is quoted more frequently than any other part of Scripture. So why were the early Christians so focused on Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount if those teachings on the Sermon on the Mount were part of the dispensation of law and did not apply directly to Christians? Did they just completely misunderstand it? Did we only get revelation about this 1,800 years later? Next question I have. If Jesus was offering Israel a physical kingdom, why did he say that his kingdom was not of this world? And why did he withdraw to the mountain when the Jews said that he was a prophet and wanted to make him king? At least some of the Jews seemed to not reject his offer of a kingdom. They they said he was a prophet. They acknowledged who he was and they wanted to make him king. But Jesus rejected that. Why? Because his kingdom was not of this world. They were trying to make him an earthly king. <clears throat> but Jesus knew that that's not the type of king he was and that his kingdom was not of this world. And so he rejected this attempt to make him king on earth. But classic dispensationalists say that's exactly what um, the promise to David was, was a physical earthly throne. So why did Jesus uh, withdraw to the mountain when the Jews believed, and when at least some of the Jews believed that he was a prophet and wanted to make him king? It doesn't make sense to me from a classic dispensationalist viewpoint. Now I want to move into some final considerations and I want to wrap this up quickly so we have uh, enough time for any discussion and questions. So here's some final reflections. First reflection is, we should be suspicious of any teachings or doctrines that cannot be traced back to the early church in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a great standard to use for any theology, not just dispensationalism. Uh, We see that John Nelson Darby is called the father of dispensationalism and that these teachings can be traced back to about 1830. And so what happened for the first 1800 years of the church? Did they all just miss this teaching? And it was only John Nelson Darby who was enlightened and was able to bring us this teaching of dispensationalism. I think any true teaching or true doctrine of the church, we should be able to see uh, throughout the church, beginning with the early church. Sometimes it's not as noticeable, but we should be able to see any true doctrine throughout the history of the church. And we just don't see that with dispensationalism. Also, we don't see that with Calvinism. Uh, That's a different topic. Uh, but we definitely don't see it with dispensationalism. Now, people will try to claim any theology that people hold to. They'll try to claim that it's been there from the times of the early church. But uh, we see with dispensationalism, that's really just not the case. Uh, there may be bits and pieces that people could 
point to and say, oh, see, this supports dispensationalism. But truly, the teaching of dispensationalism did not enter the Christian world until about 1830. And so we should be very suspicious of that. Second reflection, dispensationalism is a complex theological system that requires explanation from expert theologians. Um, (laughs) People reading scripture on their own generally are not going to come to a dispensationalist viewpoint, which is why for the first 1800 years of the church, nobody thought of this. Nobody even dreamed this up. It was only John Nelson Darby in 1830 where we start to see this theological system uh, take shape. But it's just not something that you arrive at naturally through a reading of scripture. And it requires expert theologians to tell you how to think and to interpret it for you, uh, which is why Lewis Ferry Chambers got an eight volume uh, work of systematic theology to explain uh, dispensationalism. And so Jesus said, uh, talked about, you know, revealing these things to little children and hiding them from the, uh, those who think they're wise and intelligent. And so we should be able to grasp the teachings of Jesus in a very simple way that doesn't require a complex theological system and explanation from expert theologians. Next point I want to make is that Interpreting Old Testament prophecy is difficult. So we should be careful about going beyond the explicit teachings of the New Testament. I mean, think about it. The Jews at the time of Jesus all had access to the Old Testament. They all were very familiar with it, yet none of them interpreted it correctly with relationships, with relation to the coming of Jesus and with Jesus being the Messiah. Everybody missed it. And it required Jesus explaining the scriptures to his disciples. And only then were they able to understand and interpret Old Testament prophecy correctly. And and so I would caution all of us about going beyond the explicit teachings of the New Testament. Um, We should be relying on what Jesus and the apostles taught us about interpreting Old Testament prophecy. And we should be very careful about going beyond those explicit teachings because we could miss it just like the Jews missed it in the time of Jesus. And so be careful about how you deal with Old Testament prophecy. And I think it's acceptable to say, you know what? I'm just not sure how this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. It's not clear to me. And, and let's just stick with what the new Testament teaches us. Dispensationalism, another reflection here emphasizes distinction between Jew and Gentile while the New Testament emphasizes unity. And we see that refrain in the New Testament, you know, there is no Jew and Gentile, that all are equal at the foot of the cross, that uh, the coming of Christ eliminates these superficial distinctions, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet dispensationalism emphasizes this distinction between Jew and Gentile, and it seems to go against uh, the general direction of New Testament teaching. Along with this, dispensationalism sees discontinuity in God's interactions with man and creating these two separate systems of how God deals with Israel and how God deals with uh, Gentile believers. Um, It's almost like God has two different ways of dealing with mankind. But I think throughout scripture, we see a consistent message 
that God is seeking a people for himself, a people that will be faithful to follow him. And we see that continuity from the very beginning through to the very end, whereas dispensationalism sees a bit of discontinuity and God dealing with certain people one way and another people another way. Um, and I think that's a problematic that there's not this greater sense of continuity in how God interacts with man. Another reflection is that speculation on the future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy can be a distraction from faithful, faithfully following Christ here and now. You know, people get so caught up in this, you know, newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other, trying to figure out how the Old Testament is being fulfilled. You know, what this event in modern history means, what this event means. And it becomes a distraction from just simple, faithful uh, following of Christ's teachings and commandments here and now. And along with that is that speculation on the future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy leads to division in the church. We saw that very early on with the Plymouth Brethren, who were against denominationalism and wanted all Christians to be unified apart from denominational distinctions. Yet even in their own group, they kept splitting. First, they split into the open brethren and exclusive brethren. Then the open brethren split into two groups and the exclusive brethren uh, split into all kinds of groups. And it's because they had disagreements about the future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which really has very little to do with how we lead our lives uh, as followers of Christ here and now. It's all about speculation about how Old Testament prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And why should we let that divide the church? Finally, I just want to say that as I was putting together this talk, this goes back to the point. In fact, let me put it up. It goes back to the point of dispensationalism being a complex theological system that requires expert from explanation from expert theologians. I just say that as I was preparing this talk, I just felt like, man, this is this is really complex. This is it feels like a waste of time to try to figure all this out. You know, trying to figure out all that classic dispensationalism is teaching uh, it just gave me a headache. And I thought, man, I don't want to waste my time doing this. I'd rather just focus on what Jesus teaches. Um, and in one sense, it is a waste of time. But in another sense, we need to be aware of these theological systems that are out there and floating around so that we don't fall prey to them. And so I think if we had a, had a, uh, you know, our own way, we would just focus on simple, faithful obedience to the teachings of Christ and, and his apostles. And we wouldn't get caught up in these things. We wouldn't worry about these theological systems, but because they are so prevalent in the world around us, we have to know about them. We have to understand what they're teaching and understand why we should reject them. And so even though in some ways it feels like a waste of time to even be talking about these things, uh, if we're not aware of them, we can get inadvertently sucked into them and it can lead us astray from simple obedience to the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And so it is worth looking at these things, even though sometimes it feels like a, a waste of time to even talk about it. And so that, wraps up uh, my critique of classic dispensationalism. And um, I'm going to stop sharing my screen here and we can move into a time of 
uh, questions and, and discussion. So I'll turn it back over to you, uh, Wendell. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Adam, for sharing there again. Thanks for that preparation early morning for you. Um, so yeah, we did get a list of questions and I, I don't have a real, we did get some questions that came in. I don't have a real great arrangement for these maybe, but I'll just, I'll just go through, give them to you. Um, I think Adam, you did see at least some of these questions as they came in. So to give you a heads up on them. So we have a question come in from, from Steve Martin saying, wondering who is a Jew according to dispensationalism? According to the dispensational view, who is defined as a Jew today? It is based on their, is it based on their practice of the Jewish religion or is it based on anyone that is at some point a descendant of Israel? It would seem to be that according to classic dispensationalism, it would be any physical descendant of Jacob, um, or Israel. That, that is how a Jew is defined mm-hmm. in classic dispensationalism. It's, it's very clear cut. It's easy to understand that, you know, if you're a physical yeah. descendant of Jacob, you're, uh, you're a Jew, you're Israel. If you're not, you're not. So, so this, the questioner makes this comment that if, if it is, if their belief is that anyone who is, is at some point a descendant of Israel says it, it presents some huge problems as a basic understanding of genealogy tells us a huge percentage of, of huge percentage of the earth's population may very well fit into that category. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. so for example, I have uh, great, great, great grandparents who were Jews. So what am I? Am I a Jew then? Or am I a Gentile? I don't know. I'm confused. I don't know where I fit in. Should I be, uh, you know, is my relationship with God based on his dealings with Israel? Or is my relationship God with God based on his dealings with the Gentile believers. I don't know. So it's a great question. And I think it, it goes to highlight this false dichotomy um, that classic dispensationalism puts forward. Right. Very, very good. Okay. Thanks. So, so we had another question coming in about the, um, one of the big, one of the big, Deals that I think like that works out in a very practical way on this at this uh, doctrine dispensationalism is the promise of the land. Um, mm. How and so one of the questions that came in from the dis- I take it you see the Jews and Gentiles on level ground at the foot of the cross and how do you understand the promise of God that the land of Israel was given to the descendants of Jacob forever? Quoting from Psalm 105 9 to 11. And what God once said to the surrounding nations, they'd have to accept and submit to God's plan when they're restored back to the land. Can you give me the reference again? Okay, so the one, the first reference was Psalm 105, 9 to 11. All right, let's read that. Uh, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Yeah, this is another topic or another thing we have to consider. The, the word, the words everlasting and forever in both Hebrew and Greek are not really equivalent to the English translation. And so I think sometimes we can get uh, somewhat confused when we see the words everlasting or forever. And, and understand it in terms of what they mean in English and not in terms of what they mean in, in Hebrew and Greek. 
Um, and I think there's a couple of ways to look at this, that um, Israel was returned to the land of Canaan. You know, they were exiled, the Babylonian exile, and then they were returned uh, <clears throat> to the land of Israel. And I think many would understand that as a fulfillment of what this is saying. And I think the ultimate fulfillment, and this is just my personal view. Others are free to disagree, and I'm not saying this is, you know, the definitive correct view. But I think other words would see that as being fulfilled through the church, that uh, the church is the ultimate recipient of uh, God's promises. And so the millennial kingdom will be an ultimate fulfillment of this promise of the land um, being received by the true Israel. Um, but again, I, I'm real hesitant myself to get into detailed, definitive interpretations of prophecy um, and to say this is definitely what it means. I think it's better to say, you know, these are some possibilities, but I really am not entirely sure uh, what the fulfillment will be. And I'll just leave it in God's hands to work it out in his timing. Okay. Um, yeah. So another question is, was asked, how can Jesus be the way, the truth, and the life today if Paul has a different gospel than Jesus as dispensationalists claim? How do we give the gospel as Jesus being the way, truth, and life if most of what came out of Jesus' mouth is not for us? And then uh, related, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I don't, I don't know that classic dispensationalists would claim that. I'm, in fact, I'm probably quite sure that they would not claim that Paul is preaching a different gospel than Jesus. Maybe they do, but I doubt that they would frame it that way. Um, that may be our interpretation of it. I think classic dispensationalists would say that Jesus is the way and the truth of life, just like uh, we would. Um, so I think that in that question, there's uh, it's probably more of a statement than a question saying that it seems that classic dispensationalists are preaching, uh, saying that Paul preaches a different gospel than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that that's how classic dispensationalists would understand it. Sure. Uh, so we had a we had a question coming in, um, another question that we had come in, talk about putting a modern face to this dispensationalism. So you've been addressing classic dispensationalism. Uh, this person is wondering, I can see its influence in the premillennial view of prophecy with its emphasis on Israel versus the church. Um, he's saying he hasn't seen someone who fits into that mold necessarily. Uh, for example, the idea of the church being a parenthesis that needs to be removed so Israel can reign while the church is in heaven. And he asks, where would be the modern sources of this teaching? Yeah, I think in that question he had mentioned, you know, a name like John Piper. Oh, yeah, he mentioned John Piper. Piper. Right. John Piper's a well-known uh, Calvinist who sort of popularized uh, the teachings of Jonathan Edwards and for a modern time period and who would be equivalent to that and uh, dispensationalism. Um, there's some names out there that probably are, I don't think you're going to find anyone with the name recognition of John Piper to say, oh, this is a person that is a dispensationalist. Some more modern names. One of them I mentioned in the morning session would be Charles C. Ryrie, uh, who's a 20th century theologian. Uh, some other names are Dwight Pentecost, uh, John, and uh, per- forgive me if I mispronounce this, John uh, Walvoord. Um, and uh, but I think w- where we see it more prevalent is in popular settings, you know, not necessarily with big name theologians, but in, in popular influence. For example, 
if any of you are familiar with the Left Behind series, it's a series of books um, talking about the end time. And that's the Left Behind series is very much influenced by dispensationalism. Or if you look at popular movements within Christianity um, in support of a modern state of Israel, um, that is also very closely linked to dispensationalism. And so as I look at it, I see, I see it more as a, uh, there's definitely some big name theologians behind it. Not so much as big of a name as John Piper, but it's more of a popular movement uh, that you see in various Christian circles and across different denominations. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary is also very closely linked with dispensationalism. So any of the uh, professors there would probably fall into the dispensationalist mold. So, yeah, like you say, the you were refer you were describing classic dispensationalism, and I think, at least in my experience, we I am more familiar with what I would call garden garden variety dispensationalism that kind of has um, imbibed some of those some of those that thinking, but maybe doesn't accept all the all the things that go along with it. So I guess yeah. my question for you is that so okay so I yeah I'm a I grew up in in a conservative Mennonite background um, for many years I was yeah I was part of a group that was very heavily influenced with by dispensationalism um, you know I went to a, a Mennonite Bible school and we had a I had a class that I took from a from brother that taught it called Modern Israel in History and Prophecy and so. And it was, you know, dealing with the nation of Israel. And one of the textbooks that we used, it was it was quoting this. Uh, it was one one of the textbooks that we used for that talked about this, you know, this man who's respected and went through the went <laughs> went through the land with a Bible in one hand and a rifle in the other. And so yeah. And so to me, looking looking on to what is being taught in that, I see a I see a like this problem with dispensationalism that that embraces the modern nation of Israel and what they're doing um, with warfare and everything like that. But then is also, on the other hand, is teaching, Jesus says, you don't resist your enemies, um, teaching non-resistance. So I guess what my question is, is it possible to be, to, to be a dispensationalist? Like, um, is it possible to under, like the, you said what the root of dispensationalism is, uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly how you said that. Yeah, rigid distinction between Israel and the church. Right. And I think, so that's what's behind this. It's possible to have a belief system that's based on that foundation of classic, classical dispensationalism and still have a hermeneutic or, a, or an interpretation of Jesus' teaching that is really faithful to Jesus' teaching. Well, let me think about that for a second. Um Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's, I suppose that's possible. I suppose you could take bits and pieces from here and there and put them all together and work something out where you're faithful to the teachings of Jesus and, uh, still believe in literal fulfillment of prophecy to Israel. Um, I suppose that's probably a, a possibility. Um, but again, that, that just wasn't, I, I don't think it usually works out that way. <laughs> if we just look at the practical outworking of this theology, it's usually more like what you said, where we don't 
I don't know of many uh, dispensationalists that embrace the uh, non-resistant teachings. Uh, maybe you are familiar with some, but I don't think if you if you look at the standard dispensationalists, I don't think they're going to have those views. Uh, they're going to be pro, you know, Americans, the American government support of Israel, including military support. And if you've ever visited Israel and especially visited Palestine, you can you can hear the stories of the Palestinians and uh, some of the terrible things that happen to them. Um, now, again, it's both ways. You know, the Palestinians are engaged in warfare with the Israelites and the people of Israel are engaged in warfare with the Palestinians. Um, but I don't think you could visit Israel and visit some of the Palestinians and say that the modern state of Israel is in line with the teachings of Christ. Um, and then so just to say that as American Christians, we should be supporting the American, you know, American government support of modern state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're going to have a hard time reconciling that with, uh, the teachings of Christ. So maybe it's possible, but in practical outworking, I don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I, that's that's one one circle I haven't managed to square yet either. I, I I can't I can't see how holding both can be holding both views can be can work when you really think it through. But yeah, I, there are people well, who and, do. But yeah, and when you think you know. The seven dispensations of classic dispensationalism says that we are not yet in the kingdom dispensation. So anyone who claims to be a kingdom Christian or to be following the kingdom teachings of Jesus, it seems that by definition, you're not really understanding what classic, what dispensationalism is about because we're not in the kingdom dispensation. So why would we be following the kingdom teachings of Jesus? Now, that may be an oversimplification, but um, it's there seems to be uh, a direct contradiction there that we're claiming to follow the kingdom teachings of Jesus. Don't we understand that we're not in the kingdom dispensation yet? Mm-hmm. We're under grace. So I, I don't know if those two views could be reconciled. Yeah. Yeah. People could probably do it and just be inconsistent uh, in their not have a consistent theological system. I suppose that's possible, but again, I don't see this happening in practice in the pra- practical outworking of theology. I don't see, see it happening. Sure. Thank you. So, so this is a kind of related question. Um, doing nicely says I thoroughly enjoyed and was enlightened by Adam's presentation this morning. I'm assuming Adam will get to this, but I was hoping to hear on the question of how does this theological position affect the practical living out of the Christian life? In other words, would he have a list of specific erroneous doctrines or practices that this position can lead to? It would be helpful to have a list that would be the results of espousing the dispensational position. For many people, it's hard to see the end result of certain theological positions. The end result is that if Jesus's kingdom teachings don't apply until the millennium, (laughs) <laughs> then we can take the Sermon on the Mount and as as, uh, as I've heard Dean Taylor say, if you took the Sermon on the Mount and did the exact opposite of what it teaches, it would look like many of the uh, modern churches today. Mm-hmm. And so if the Sermon on the Mount is not directly applicable to Christians, but is a is an ethic for the millennium time period in Revelation 20, it means that the Sermon on the Mount is a great 
list of suggestions or ideas and it's not commands for Christians. So just take the Sermon on the Mount and say, we don't have to follow these anymore. Um, and you'll see how in a practical sense, this is a dangerous theology. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another question. Uh, um, we have a couple from, from, from Randy Gross here. He's, he's giving us some questions on, at a fundamental level, in view in light of Galatians 1, 6 to 9, do you believe dispensationalism is another gospel? Yeah, similar to what we talked about before. Um, I don't think so. I don't I don't think at least from the perspective of a classical a classic dispensationalist or dispensationalist, I don't think any of them would claim that they are <laughs> preaching another gospel or that you know, there is another gospel. I think they would all claim that there's only one gospel. Um, so I don't want to accuse anyone of that uh, because I, I I imagine there are many dispensationalists uh, that are very faithful to the teachings of Christ. Even if dispensationalism teaches that um, the teachings of Christ are for the millennium time period, I still think that there's probably a lot of dispensationalists that are serious about following the teachings of Christ and so I don't want to accuse them of preaching a different mm-hmm. gospel uh, or to say that they're they're being unfaithful. I think there's some dangers mm-hmm. in the theology. And there's probably some who follow the theology who are not entirely faithful to all the teachings of Christ. Um, but I don't want to uh, accuse them of embracing a different gospel. Great. Thank you for that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in discussions with, with dispensationalists too, and it's, like I said before, I appreciate your uh, charitable way of talking about them. Sometimes this, this discussion can get really heated and, and kind of ugly, actually. And in fact, that has been the experience of many, yeah, many of us in my circles that have seen this kind of get turn ugly when, when someone was pushing their view. And so the, another question here, what is, this person says they've seen dispensate, they've seen this turn mean and offensive. And he is asking, what is the best way to help or reach these people? Or maybe, yeah, maybe you have some experience. Do you have experience in discussing this with someone who's on the opposite side of the, of the, um, yeah, opposite perspective here, Adam? I think just uh, approaching people with grace and humility is <laughs> when you're approaching people from different theological backgrounds, doing it with grace and humility. And I, I don't think that arguing about theology accomplishes much. Mm-hmm. Uh, a session like this I see is helpful to mm-hmm. uh, avoid potential pitfalls of dangerous theologies. But in general, when somebody is, uh, rooted in a theological system. Um, they're not generally looking to change that. Um, and so I think intellectual arguments generally are not going to be very fruitful. I think maybe what's more fruitful is how we live our lives, how we model the teachings of Christ in our own life, how we become salt and light in the world. And I think that is probably more powerful in changing, uh, how people approach their Christian faith than getting into arguments about theology. I, I've been in a lot of discussions, debates about theology, and I've just not seen a lot of fruit come from it. Um, and I've intentionally 
you backed off from that because it, gen- it generally just gets people upset and doesn't change how they view things. If anything, they become more entrenched in their point of view because they feel like they have to defend it. And so I, th- I feel like just approaching people with love, humility, and modeling what it means to follow the teachings of Jesus is, is our best bet. So I take it then you're not one of these people who feels called to a ministry of exposing false teachers and that, <laughs> that kind of prolifer- proliferates on the internet sometimes, um, you know, these, these expo- exposing these false doctrines and, yeah, I guess some very nasty stuff that, that, that gets said. And, yeah. Yeah. And you know, would any of us claim to have our, that our theology is 100% correct, that we have it all figured out? Um, I don't think I do. I think there's areas where I still have questions. Uh, I think there's probably areas where I'm wrong. And, um, and also there's probably areas where I'm right, but the person who's got it wrong is living more faithfully to Christ than I am. And so who am I to, you know, tell him that he's wrong and that he needs to change? I think, you know, Focusing on being as faithful as we can to following Christ. And I, I just don't feel a, a great calling myself to correct other people's theology because generally people are not open to that. <laughs> and it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't seem to bear a whole lot of fruit. It seems to result in people getting angry and upset in these very uh, mean spirited websites. Uh, that you see, uh, as you've mentioned. And, and so if we're not careful, we can lose our Christian witness, mm-hmm. um, by engaging in these sorts of things. I yeah. think, I think instead, you know, laying out, you know, this is what dispensationalism teaches. And hopefully I've been fair and not misrepresented what classic dispensationalism teaches. Um, I imagine there's a few points I've maybe I've, uh, misrepresented them uh, unintentionally. I don't know, but, um, just having a, a discussion, you know, about this is what, this is my theology. This is your theology. This is where we differ. I think that can be fruitful if it's done in the right spirit, but going in and saying, I'm going to go talk to this person and convince them that they're wrong. I don't think generally is fruitful. And I speak in experience. I've done that a lot. <laughs> And it's not worked out well. <laughs> yeah, very good. Okay. I, I have one more question. I guess if anyone else has, it's on this, um, on this Zoom. If you have questions yet, we'll, you got a little bit of a chance to put them on the chat. Um, another question. So he's, he asked the question, Jesus told Nicodemus, a man cannot see the kingdom unless he is born again. To what extent is the reluctance or the inability to see the prophets pointing to Jesus' present tense kingdom a consequence of never having received a spirit enlightened Jesus' epiphany? Is he, is the question seems to be suggesting that people who embrace dispensationalism haven't had that epiphany. Um, and I would, I would probably disagree with if that if that is the heart of the question, if I'm understanding it correctly, I would I would disagree with that. Um, I would imagine that many dispensationalists are truly born again, um, and they just have a different understanding of how they interpret Old Testament prophecy, and they tend to interpret it more literally. 
Um, but I don't think it's necessarily because they're not born again. It's just different understanding. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm not, I have someone else who, who put on, on the chat here today. I'm just trying to pull that up. So thanks. Appreciate, appreciating your humility. So needed in the kingdom today. So thank you for that brother. Um, and I, so thank you everyone who has been part of this. I know Saturday afternoon for most of us is maybe not the ideal time to sit down and listen to a presentation, but maybe at least for me, it was, it was a hot Saturday. So it gives us a little bit of time to relax or cool down, not doing active work. So, um, glad you could join us. Um, yeah. I just, just one more question came in. We'll, we'll give time for this one yet. It, it, here on the chat it says, in my experience with dispensationalism, the gospel is the gospel according to Jesus is him dying on the cross and separating his teachings from that. Paul taught grace and Jesus taught law. Would you say that's a fair assessment? I think, I think so. Yeah. I would say that not just in dispensationalism, but in, in, other theological systems like Calvinism, the gospel is very much focused on salvation. Um, the, in, in other words, the gospel is basically equated to laying out the plan of salvation. And it seems to miss the bigger picture of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Um, now, I wouldn't go as far to say that people are preaching a false gospel. I would just say that they're zeroing in on a very on a sub point of the gospel and missing the bigger picture of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so they're not wrong, but they're like I said, yeah, they're just missing the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. They're focusing on a sub point instead of the main point. Mm -hmm. It's like what they're they're teaching is true. Yeah. Jesus, you know, the plan of salvation is true. Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us of our sins, forgive us of our sins and, uh, enable us to enter the kingdom, but it seems to stop there. Okay. Well, now that we're in the kingdom, what about that? You know, mm-hmm. and the teaching on that seems to be a bit lacking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about the elephant in the room. There's always the, there's that old, there's that old um, poem about the blind men who went to examine the elephant and they all had yeah. a different perspective on what the elephant was. And I think that's a good um, <laughs> way of seeing this. Um, you can, you can, you can zero in on one one aspect of what the gospel is and miss maybe miss the big picture, um, right? Jesus, Jesus' kingdom. Yeah, and that and, I guess yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and in in a lot of Paul's letters, there is a is a different focus, and we have to remember that. Paul is not writing systematic theology in the New Testament. He's addressing specific problems in specific churches. And so he focuses on the aspects of theology he needs to focus on in order to address the problems. Um, but we see, you know, in the book of Acts that Paul and the other apostles were preaching on the kingdom. You see that a n- number of times. And so, but if you're, if you're starting with the letters of Paul and focusing on those issues, uh, it can be easy to miss the greater teachings of the kingdom um, and just sort of gloss over those verses in Acts where it talks about preaching the kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, again, it's, it's, I think some would 
Well, yeah, some clearly lump in the teaching of Jesus as law and contrast that to grace and, you know, the teachings of Paul. Again, I don't think they would say it was a different gospel, um, but it's just a different understanding. I would I would chalk it up to a different focus um, and focusing, as I said, on a sub point rather than on the big picture of the kingdom. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks a lot, brother, for sharing, and thanks for your uh, thoughtful presentation and perspective on this. Um, and thank for everyone who joined us this afternoon. And we're, um, I see Mark Yoder on, on this call, and I'm wondering, if, Mark, if you would be willing to lead us in a closing prayer. Uh, yes, I'd be glad to, brother. Thank you. Go ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this um, opportunity of hearing this teaching. Bless Brother Adam for his clear teaching. We could so well understand. Lord, give us wisdom as we face so much confusion, so much deception in this modern world. Help us to be ministers of light, ministers of truth, ministers of grace, ministers of love in a humble spirit, Lord, that we could show the spirit of Jesus in our lives, our families, our churches would manifest Jesus to the lost world. And there's so many people that are confused. So many people have heard teachings and have not thought, thought it through and don't understand. And help us, Lord, to be ministers of grace, ministers of light to our lost world in so many ways. And it's so beautiful, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We love you for calling us to be your children, for calling us to be part of your kingdom, Lord. Such a beautiful opportunity, and we thank you. Help us to live the way you want us to live and glorify your name. And as the world gets darker, that we could live closer to you and lift up your glory. All over the globe, Lord, your glory would be seen as we follow you, humbly serve you. And we thank you again for this teaching. Bless Brother Adam for all the time he put in this. Such a blessing. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, Brother Mark. Thank you, Brother Adam, and everyone else who's been here. Um, we are two weeks from now on June 4 at 6 a.m. We have a um, we have a personal testimony by Bracken Kirkland uh, from a life of sin to a family music ministry. So looking forward to that. Two weeks from now, and God bless you all and your day. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.